HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Cutting the Curd has been brought to you by Academy Opus Cassius. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training in the heart of France. For more information, visit academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Greg Blaze, and today we continue our series about lost cheeses, where we're exploring specific cheeses or styles of cheese that no longer exist or cease to exist or are ceasing to exist in some fundamental way due to industrialization, shifts in cultural preference, ecological changes, and so on. So in this episode, I'm happy to welcome friend of the show, Matt Rubiner, as my co-host for the day. How are you doing, Matt? Well, Greg, how are you? I'm all right, buddy. I'm all right. I just uh, got on a bus at 6.45 in the morning in Maine, and I uh, got dumped out here at about 4 p.m., so I'm happy I made it to the studio at all, to be honest with you. Yeah, I've been up since 4.30, pal. Yeah, you're a farmer. Um, also, I'm very excited to have Sue Conley on the line, one of the co-founders of Tamales Bay Foods and the Calgo Creamery. How are you, Sue? It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Can, can Sue hear me as well, or is she spared that? No, I she- can hear you, Matt. <laughs> How are you, Sue? Good. Good to hear your voice. You are broadcasting live over the interwebs. Everybody can hear you. Everybody. Oh, <laughs> so, um, Sue, when we were brainstorming topics for this Lost Cheese series, I contacted another friend of the show, uh, slash superstar Deborah Dickerson, for advice. And she recommended we talk to you, Sue, because of the effect that the drought in California has had on your cheese. Um, so here in New York, as I'm sure in other places around the country, we see the headlines about the drought in the news, but I don't think we can fathom like, really what it's like to produce food in California right now. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the drought and how it's changed the way you make and distribute cheese, Sue. Well, the good news for Northern California is that we never have enough water. So we've been figuring out ways to collect water and to... Um, use it wisely for decades. Um, We had a big drought in the 70s, and all the ranchers in our area built holding ponds 
and um, figured out ways to reuse water, and they reduced their herd size. They did things that, you know, continue to be in place today. Um, now the people down in the San Joaquin Central Valley um, are dependent on the runoff from the Sierra snow melt, and there was no snow this year. So I have to say that we're in better shape than most, though we are very um, affected by the costs of the supplemental feed that does come from that high Sierra area, the alfalfa, you know, very water-intense crop. So we've seen, especially uh, for organic feed, that the prices have tripled in the past year. So I think these are our biggest stresses, our um, costs. When I spoke with Deborah, you know, she's, uh, well, Actually, so the most contributing factors to the drought are the are the snowpack, right? It's uh, when it when it drizzles dribbles down into Southern California. You guys have water, and when you don't, when it doesn't, you don't. Um, right. And so, is the effect? Have you seen the effect on other cheese mo- uh, cheese makers in the region beside yourself? Well, certainly uh, the dairies have been culling their herds and really, you know living within their uh, means in terms of water allocation. And, um, you know, cows do take a lot of water. Um, Up here in Marin and Sonoma County, um, as I said, you know, we do have holding ponds and and things in place that have helped us a whole lot. Sue, are any of the any of the regulatory things that we read about? Um, are you subject to any of those where you are in terms of uh, in terms of your water usage? You know, they haven't done anything yet except ask that we cut back. So um, Albert Strauss is our main source right. for milk, and he is a very innovative rancher. So he's installing now a um, it's a water treatment plant that's right at the um, his production facility mm-hmm. so that he will be able to bring the cleaning water back to potable so it can be reused for cleaning and this is a um, technique that has been used also at the Lagunitas brewery here uh, you know, everyone is every all of us who make food use a lot of water. So, so Lagunitas is uh, a little bit ahead of the curve, and that it's this um, system that's inside of a shipping container. That's the I mean, Lagunitas probably has six of these, but mm. you know, Albert's getting one, we're getting one, and we'll be able to reuse all of the water, which is significant. The cleanup water. And um, that should really help us a lot. I noticed that even though, I mean, even though the drought obviously affects you, that food prices have not gone up. Um, And I think that that's probably an effect of, I mean, probably affected by the way agriculture is in California. A lot of times, isn't it true that the 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 non-essential crops like rice and cotton and things like that, the the ranchers and farmers just sort of tuck those in and save their water for the more essential like almonds and fruit production. 
Is that is that true? You know, I'm not really a an expert on the the industrial agricultural practices, but um, yeah, they have some very interesting uh, water rights. Depending on one of the uh, local authors here said, it depends on when it's like high school. If you're a senior, you get the most privileges. <laughs> yeah. If you're a freshman, you hardly get any. So the first people who came to uh, settle down on the rivers got the water rights. And, the, you know, as you go down, you have fewer rights, and those go along with the deed on those properties. So some farmers have lots of water and some have none. Unfortunately, you know, that's, that's the way of the world. I mean, it's so difficult for, well, certainly for anybody, any of us on the on the East Coast, maybe the rest of the country, to even imagine this. You know, and I'm from Michigan where we're, absolutely awash in water. It's just unthinkable. Is this, um, I mean, are we all preparing out there that this is, a, this is a permanent condition? Has there been any changes in the drought? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Well, it, you know, it's the third year of the drought. And so if it goes one more year, then everybody in Los Angeles will have to get rid of their swimming pool. <laughs> Bummer. <job. laughs> no, Can't kidding. have that. Um, <laughs> it's... Um, you know, the whole central part of the state, which is yeah. something like 40% of all the fruits and vegetables, is a desert. I mean, they're farming in the desert. So everything is controlled. You know, it's always they, they can predict the weather and, you know, they can maximize the number of crops. And by going uh, with water-saving techniques like using emitters instead of broadcasting the water, They've uh, been able to add more plantings, more acres. So, yeah, if it goes another year, I mean, I'm surprised that we haven't seen significant increases in food prices, and I think we will. I mean, I don't, I think that. Yeah, I don't know how we couldn't. Yeah. Um, we certainly have seen it in all of our costs, mm. and we haven't raised our prices yet because. We don't know what the real number is. We've been able to absorb all of those costs, but at some point we'll have to um, respond. Yeah, you got to pass some of that along to the customer eventually. Right. <laughs> I mean, and I, I do that same thing in my in my own shop. Uh, I mean, cost of buying cheese and making cheese are gone up exponentially over the last few years that I've done this. So you try to protect the customers from it as long as you can. But uh, eventually, you just have to raise prices. Yeah. So when I spoke with Deborah, you know, she specifically mentioned, and just to swing us back to the topic of uh, lost cheese, and thank you much for giving us a little background on the drought and where you're at. Um, but so when I spoke with her, she mentioned cottage cheese from the cowgirls as a lost cheese or something that you guys weren't doing <clears throat> anymore, which kind of bummed me out. That's my favorite fresh cheese that you guys made and or, or make and or made and i was lucky enough to get you to send it to me across country um and uh, so i was wondering if you could tell us about the process of making cottage cheese and uh what about it required more water and why you had to stop making it well um we stopped making it before the drought hit and um because it is a water intensive cheese and our uh, creamery in Point Reyes is um, we actually have limits on how much we can put into 
the septic system, or so they don't want it to get into the groundwater because there's a lot of acidity to weigh and wash water. So, um, you know, we don't have one of these pretreatment Evo vaults that we're going to get for our creamery in Petaluma, but I guess ultimately, you know, that's the answer that we have to be reusing all of the water that we possibly can. Why is so, it so water intensive, if I can ask? Well, we um, we have to, it's water intensive and it's creamery, time in the creamery intensive. Mm-hmm. It literally, we were making 100 pounds a week and it took two days in the creamery because we have to separate the milk to make non-fat milk for the curd and then the cream goes into the dressing. So that took one day to separate and then and then inoculate the milk because it's an overnight acid set with no rennet. So um, it's a really delicate curd. In the morning we um, we need to wash the curd so we cook it for an hour and stir it, cook mm-hmm. it and stir it, and then wash it twice so that all the acidity is gone and it's cooled down. So it you know, just used a lot of water in that for a very small amount of cheese. It was so tasty, and, though. Yeah, it was. <laughs> hey, you guys, it's my favorite cheese. It's coming back. We're it's, building a new creamery. <laughs> We're oh, going to make yeah, well, it happen. You know, we, used to, we used to get some, you know, half a dozen at a time, and it was probably a foolish proposition to get it all the way on this coast. And it was hard to sell by the time we got it here. It was, you know, it was quite expensive and had hours left on its expiration date, but it was worth it. And then what I didn't eat myself for breakfast, to drop a name, Ruth Reichel used to eat the rest and consider it oh. very, very big. <laughs> so get on it. <laughs> yeah. We, we, I have lots of angry customers at Italy because I can't get that anymore. But um, it's cool that you guys preemptively stopped making that. Um, I want to say it's been about a year since you've been able to make it, right? Roughly? It's actually been three years. Three years. Man, I am like burned out from my job, must be. I have no idea of the passage of time. No, every, but all our farmer's market customers, they ask every week. <laughs> <laughs> we will bring it back. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, thanks for giving us a little insight into what um, the process is. So we had a great question come in from one of our listeners in England, uh, Neil Robinson in London. Thanks for your feedback, Neil. I'm sorry I never replied to your email. Um, he wanted us to start asking more cheesemakers what they do with their way. So I think that's a topic we're going to explore in a full episode this summer. But I was wondering if you could tell us what um, you guys at Cowgirl or you gals at Cowgirl Creamery currently do with whey. Because it just seems to be a, like a good idea to use the liquid part of the milk in a region with drought. Yeah, we do use it um, for uh, feed. One one farmer picks up for uh, pigs and chickens in Point Reyes, and then in uh, Petaluma it goes to an organic uh, hog farmer in Cape Hay Valley. Um, when we first started, we couldn't pay anyone to pick it up, and the farmer who was across the street didn't want to use it in his feed ration because it was more, um, it was easier to measure powdered whey. So he didn't want to use ours that was just coming fresh right from across the street. But this drought, what it's done is it's, it's made every commodity precious. Uh, 
So our way is in demand, and we actually get a little bit of money for it. Well, that should be helping you to be rebuild your creamery or to build a new it creamery. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you mentioned that the, um, that the uh, the governing bodies there didn't want you to put too much way into the septic, um, or right. too much too much way into the septic. So that's a challenge. Is that one of the challenges of reusing a uh, reusing the way? Um, it's um, it's like I guess highly acidic nature, or is it's, it's yeah. Well, the um, the way that's going into our septic field is just from the wash water. There's still a really high um, BOD in that wash water. So uh, we've never, we used to haul our way to a um, one of the manure ponds, that, you know, one of the farmer's manure ponds. Yeah. And it was just wasted because it's so uh, valuable as a nutritional supplement for mm. Well, what else does a cheesemaker so, do? Can a cheesemaker do with it if if you don't have a you know a local hog farmer who wants it? Well, mostly you know the large producers dry it, and it's oh. a very valuable commodity. Um, we would hope someday we would have enough way that maybe we can make a a sports drink or something. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that if you were going to make any whey beverages. I, I well, customers keep asking me for whey beverages, and I never know what to tell them, so I send them. Packs. We better make some. <laughs> we I got some from uh, from the white mustache. Uh, she sent them in, and of course, because I'm just that guy, I was like, "These are going to be disgusting. I'm not going to try these." And then I, because I'm just a curmudgeon like that. And um, uh-huh. then, then of course, when I did try them, I was like, "Yeah, all right, these are pretty good." You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got to try those. <laughs> she had a really good one with like mango in it. I want to say passion fruit. Um, but I uh, I was wondering, yeah. You know, maybe if you were going to do that, and you actually preempted the question I was going to ask you for. Uh, so I, I hope you do make a cowgirl creamery sports drink. I would carry that here. I would. I would oh, good. I would fly that out. Um, we would make it exclusively for you. <laughs> I w- Wait, what? That's You're right, Rubiner. You're not getting any of my sports drink, Rubiner. Not a not a drop. But you can come right. buy some from me. It's going to be a tough sell anyway, pal. <laughs> well. I want to, we're going to take a little bit of a break, um, but when we come back, we'll be talking more with Matt Rubiner and Sue Conley about cottage cheese and the effects of the drought in California, all kinds of other interesting things. The Academy Opus Caseus is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. The Academy is the only professional cheese school integrating hands-on practice, formal instruction, and curriculum-related visits in every course. The Academy's core courses for mongers and affinors are offered at the Mons facilities in France, and abridged courses are offered in Vermont, California, and London. A structured discipline of sensory analysis is practiced daily. The Academy has been recognized by the American Cheese Society as an approved education center for those preparing for the certified cheese professional exam. Here's a reading of a quote from Kevin Palmaccio, a graduate of the program. 
The balance of time is what sets essential foundations apart from other educational opportunities. While the classroom is important, spending time at the goat farm and working alongside the mom's staff immersed us in real work and taught me real skills I've already applied in my career. As a relative newcomer to the cheese business, daily concentration on sensory analysis was paramount. As a cheesemonger, I'm now in a better position to familiarize myself with a wide range of products and sell with more confidence. For more information and to apply for courses, visit their website at academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Cutting the Curds. On the line, we have Sue Conley of Cowgirl Creamery talking to us about the drought in California and the effect of che- on cheese making in, in the region. And I also have uh, Cutting the Curd deacon and trustee Matt Rubiner as my co-host for the day. <laughs> for, for the second part of this episode, uh, I'd like to focus a little bit on the future. Um, we... We're hoping you wouldn't say that the cottage cheese was going to be lost forever, but just in case, I was going to ask you, you know, do we see more cheeses being lost forever, and how do we see this panning out? So um, I wanted to talk to you, Sue, um, about the future a little bit. You're the only uh, American cheesemaker we'll be interviewing as part of this series, so I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on smaller artisan creameries, like sort of existing beyond the lifetime of their current ownership. Yeah, I think it's a true concern, and, you know, we've seen several here in our area that have been, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Barbara Bacchus, specifically the Goat Sleep, who was just such a scholar in um, cheese making and never, actually she taught one person how to make it, but she seems to be following the same path of being the sole cheese maker and, you know, holding on to the information. So, um, I think I actually am a proponent for for growth, um, getting just big enough to have help and to be able to pass on the knowledge and the cheese. I you know losing cheese is is just a heartbreak, um, and I'm also a little bit concerned about. I mean, these are precious things for all of us that we. We have these fabulous small producers. The second thing that's precious is that they produce on the farm. That's very romantic and and uh, appealing, but it's also very difficult to do that and live up to the FDA requirements for food safety. So I am, if anyone ever asks me, I say I am for off farm cheese production just to be able to establish those uh, safety um, requirements that are being um, implemented these days. It, I mean, it's such a shame given, you know, that uh, there's there's certainly not in my lifetime, but never never been a, a, a time when the, the market for, you know, small production artisan cheeses was so vibrant and, and you know, their, their ease of transport. Is is better and better that uh, that we should that these cheeses should be in danger, you know, of dying just when the market is is reached such a such a level of maturity. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it just seems like we're getting our act together, like you said, just enough to be able to. And we've educated the consumers that they want to buy these things. We've gotten them to purchase them, despite the fact that they're exponentially more expensive than the crappy dairy you see at a lot of supermarkets. You know, we, we've got it all together. So, and I would ask either of you, you know, do you think that we are creating organizations and systems that support the long traditions of cheese making in the U.S.? Or do you think that reality is, is that we're going to see a lot of these cheeses get lost? What do you think, Sue? Well, um, I think that, they, that we need to organize as businesses. I mean, I think that our, you know, our trade association, the American Cheese Society is a huge help, but when you see um, businesses like Jasper Hill that are really looking to uh, group cheesemakers together so that there's more uh, sharing of expense and infrastructure and marketing and all that, and we do a similar thing here by, um, you know, having high-profile retail and then a distribution system to uh, the accounts in our area. So, I mean, I think those things, you know, uh, Jasper Hill and Tamales Bay Foods, our distribution network with Deborah Dickerson, the, you know, greatest expert, um, or one of the great experts in our country. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think, you know, our, our association can help with, by kind of calming down the regulatory Aspects and that they're doing a good job at that, of including the FDA and the discussion, and try to get them to back off a bit. But then I think that every region needs organization of the businesses in order to uh, share the burden of of these very practical things that we're working with. I mean, there's people in the east and there's people in the west. So who's going to do that in the middle of the country? Because that would seem to be what you need, right? You need to link up. Somebody's got to step up in Madison. Yeah. <laughs> they got to create that same that same sort of thing, right? I mean, yeah. I, I remember back when we were making um, the art artisanal uh, cheese center way back in the day in 2004. And that... Uh, the, one of the founders of Daphne Zeppos and I were trying to figure out a way to get cheese from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast using you guys, using Tomales Bay as a link up. And I think I got as far I could get the cheese to like Dallas. <laughs> and that was as far as I could get it before like the Teamsters were like, yeah, you're going to fill up this whole truck or else, you know. <laughs> and it sort of, sort of died there. But it would seem um, that maybe we were a touch ahead of our time. But now those things would be totally possible. Because I see what you seem to be saying is that the ACS can deal with uh, the federal uh, regulations as a, a governing body, right? But we need some uh, some business people to sort of to get together in the middle to make sure everything gets passed from place to place. But what the thing we that I didn't hear you say, and that I always get concerned about, is what you spoke of: is that who who makes the cheese after the original makers are gone? You know, and I know I already asked you that once, but. It's concerning to me uh, just because I, I noticed that as I buy cheese from people, they're not getting – they're getting a little long in the tooth, and I don't see that they're kids or I don't – I wonder – I just wonder who's going to replace them as cheesemakers, you know? How do you guys yeah, do – Yeah, I don't think you can count on ki- the kids to do it. You know, they might not be interested. <laughs> it's okay. So somehow 
um, I have this idea that, you know, if we had here in our area a building that had almost condominiums of cheese-making rooms with a shared infrastructure of uh, boilers and chillers and waste treatment, that it could be a, you know, a cheaper entry to cheesemaking, and there could be more interaction between the cheesemakers without them being in each other's space. So I think that it's, it's bigger than a family trying to pass it on. You know, it has to be like a whole community effort to, um, to, keep, the, to keep the practices uh, going through the generations. I mean, you thought you want to make a cheesemonger, a cheesemaker's school? Is that what you're saying? Sort of? Not really. I mean, I think, you know, they just need space to do their thing. Yeah, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a, a, a shortage of people, you know, willing to enter into the business these days. And I, I don't know whether it's because, uh, obviously, it's just because of an increase, or largely because of just an increased interest in this. You know, who, who would have ever known that cheesemakers and cheesemongers would be a, a hip trade? Um, yeah. But, uh, um, but you know, and maybe the, the hurdles are lower, at least the willingness to, to jump over the hurdles. Um, um, so you think there's, you know, enough of an influx. One always laments the, you know, the loss of a, of a single farm cheese and so forth, and I can't imagine that ever not being the case. Um, you know, I, I still, you know, the, I don't know if you know um, Caroline Hillman, who made Hillman farm cheese, is one of just the, which is some of the greatest cheese in the country, and she's maybe an hour from here. But, uh yeah. You know, we always used to call them the the brigadoon of of cheeses. You know, you're just as likely to see a, you know, a griffin, um, in these hills as you are to run across a Hillman farm cheese. And then that just <laughs> kind of died away. And and uh, um, I think we'll always we'll, we'll always lament those. But there seems such an influx of of young dynamic um, um, cheesemaker aspirants who who uh, seem to be you know at least from the at least from the the things I read and the samples sent me just seems to be flooding into the market and anything to make that uh, an easier proposition. There's also opportunity to link with uh, dairies. You know, I mean, I think I hold hope for that. And we have a few examples here of a yogurt maker who started on a dairy and mm. you know was the biggest customer of the dairy and now has moved off the farm. But they have a long-lasting relationship, and, you know, it's a big enough company that others are learning, and it'll probably keep going. Mm. And I think that if it's just a one-person operation, it's just bound to disappear. I mean, even even uh, larger operations, the last show we did on this was, uh, was on Emmentaler, something you would think would never go away. But there are precious few makers of that um, just due to the logistics and uh, I think still due to the to, uh, and to the fact it might not be in, in as many people to pass these traditions down to. I always say, and it's unfortunate, I always, I, even though there's this influx or we in the cheese industry see this influx of makers and mongers, we also operate sort of like in the bubble of our own industry. I think the world around us is like is changing against it. But that's just my you know downer view on things, I suppose. But um, I hope I hope that um, that people will link up and con- to continue to make all of these things. You know, um, I'm glad that we got to talk to you a little bit about 
uh, your cheese, Sue, um, and I'm very glad that it's coming back. Do you have a plan? I just want to ask you one more time. Do you have a, do you have an ex, an expected time frame for you for you to get the creamery up and running and for us to see your cottage cheese out there again? Well, we have a two year. Uh, we have two years on our lease at our creamery, and we're looking to start building a new creamery now. So that. And that will take about 18 months. So I'm saying two years, you're going to see that cottage cheese on the shelf. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Ruben, are you going to get your six pieces back? Wait. <laughs> Tell Ruth right away. You better get Ruth down there, man. <laughs> well, I wanted to uh, to say thanks to, to both of you so much for coming on today's show, um, especially you, pleasure. Sue, and not you, Matt. I'm, I'm, I was hoping you wouldn't come. You know, but, Whatever. But you, <laughs> actually, we were hoping to get you down in the studio, but you're a busy man. Um, okay. I. Well, you know, initially we had uh, thought your cottage cheese was lost forever, but I learned today that it's coming back, and that makes me a happy guy. Um, we initially wanted to just talk about that, but it looks like we got to broach a lot of different topics and why cheeses get lost in America and, um, you know, the effects of the drought in California. Um, so, again, thanks so much, guys, for coming on and giving me a little bit of your time today, and uh, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, there's a lot of stuff coming up in the cheese world over the next couple months, so stay tuned for some great episodes. Thanks a lot, and adios. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>